This morning, I'll be reading uh, the story of the Philippian jailer, so we'll be looking at Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. I'll uh, read the text now. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bounds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said to them, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that was in his household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us hear this morning, Lord. I pray that the gospel would be clearly proclaimed here this morning and that uh, as we look to the doctrine of conversion, I pray that we would see that you, Lord, and only you have the power to save. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we'll be looking at the doctrine of conversion and what a miraculous doctrine it is. You know, God works in the heart of a sinner, they hear the gospel, and they repent in belief. Uh, We'll be looking at the story of the Philippian jailer, which we just read, and we'll take a closer look at his miraculous conversion. And before we dive into the text, I think it'd be helpful if we just talked a little bit about conversion. What is it? What happens? And so conversion is, is changing or turning from one thing to another. So in the case of Christianity, one would turn from one master, sin, and serve another master, Christ. But what happens to us physically at conversion? Ezekiel prophesies about this in the Old Testament when he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So God physically changes us at conversion. He removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul tells the Corinthians that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So at conversion, we are a new creation. We're made new. No longer are we a slave to sin, but we are alive in Christ. And while what happens to us at conversion is universal to all Christians, every conversion experience is different. Uh, Think back to your own conversion. If you were to ask the person sitting next to you about their conversion story, it might be similar, or it could be wildly different. No two people have the same conversion experience, and You know, every Christian uh, throughout history has a unique um, conversion experience. And like the Philippian jailer, our unique testimonies, they have been given to us by God. And so conversion, when you think about it, it's something that's universal to all Christians. So if you're a Christian here today or watching on the live stream, you have experienced it. And so this morning in our text, the story of the Philippian jailer, we're going to see four realities that accompany conversion. And so my purpose for preaching this sermon this morning is that you would see that God has the power to save. Not only did God have the power to save then in the first century, but God has the power to save now in the 21st century as well. 
So we'll be looking at chapter 16 of the book of Acts. And if I'm being honest, this is one of my favorite books, uh, chapters, book, yes, and chapters in all the Bible. Uh, There's a lot going on in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. So Paul meets Timothy at the very beginning of the chapter. For the first time, he recruits him to join him. This changes Paul's ministry forever. Uh, Then, after being forbidden to go to Asia, Paul receives a vision calling him to Macedonia. And Paul and his team make their way to Philippi, where by the riverside, Lydia is saved and baptized. So Paul and Silas hang around uh, by the riverside, hang around Philippi long enough. They cast a demon out of a slave girl and their master is not happy about this. And so they get drug into the marketplace, you remember, where they're beaten and then taken into custody. They're taken to prison and they're put, in, they're put into the inner prison, which, is, which is, just isn't prison, but it's like the place they keep for the worst prisoners. So they're fastened into the stocks and all this happens in the first 24 verses of Acts chapter 16. And that brings us to our uh, passage this morning, Acts 16, 25 through 34. Uh, we're going to look at the text a little bit closer. In our text this morning, we're going to see four realities about conversion. That's four realities about conversion. Our first reality is God provides a specific set of circumstances. God will provide a specific set of circumstances. Look back to verses 25 and 26 of Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So what a great picture of Paul and Silas's faithfulness here to God. Here they are, they're unjustly thrown in prison, they're in the inner prison, and they're praying and singing hymns to God. Uh, The other prisoners are are listening to them, and the text says, a great earthquake hits. Now, this area of Macedonia uh, is, was prone to earthquakes, so this would not have been out of the ordinary. Earthquakes were, <clears throat> were common, a common occurrence in this area. However, if you look at the text, an earthquake that leaves the prisoners unchained and free to leave the prison would have been considered a providential act of God. <clears throat> I think it's fitting that, you know, Paul, or it's fitting that God uses a, little, a literal earthquake here to talk about how the Philippian jailer will be saved. Because uh, I think a great earthquake might be the best description for a lot of our conversions. <clears throat> I, I think I need to stop right here and just say, there's times in my life where I'm just at an, in awe of what God does. God does something in my life, and I just can't believe it's happening, right? And so this is one of those times. Not, not because I was picked as preacher of the year, but because I was picked as preacher of the year eight years from the day that the circumstances to my conversion happened. On April 26, 2015, I left a friend's house and headed to the gas station to buy a pack of cigarettes. To get to the gas station, I had walked across his neighbor's lawn and headed down the street. Uh, As I walked out of the gas station, the police were there waiting for me. They began questioning me about walking across her lawn, and uh, presumably she had called the police on me. And at this point, when they were questioning me, I was confident they were just going to let me go with a stern talking to. But something happened I wasn't expecting. The officer in the car who was running my name through the database took my ID and she put it in her upper left pocket. And at that point, she gave her partner the look. Now, if if you've never been arrested, which I'm going to go ahead and assume that a lot of you guys have never been arrested, the, the look is when a routine traffic stop for walking across someone's lawn turns into a long ride to jail. So she gives her partner the look, and I I see this happening. And for a split second, I look at him and think, can I outrun him? Uh, No. And so 
uh, I know at this point it's over for me, and so I'm quickly cuffed, and I'm taken to the jail. And so at this point in my life, I wish I could tell you that going to jail and being arrested was an uncommon occurrence in my life, but it was not. You know, this arrest was just like every other time I'd been arrested, but like the Philippian jailer, this earthquake moment in my life would change my life forever. So these were the circumstances that ultimately led to my conversion, that arrest. And, you know, praise God for my, my, neighbor, my friend's neighbor. You know, praise God for her. I, I think it's important as Christians, we can all look back on the circumstances that surrounded our conversion and realize them for what they are. You know, it wasn't by chance or bad timing that I walked across her lawn and she called the police on me. You know, think back to your own conversion. Perhaps you've been a Christian since childhood. You know, do you think that your parents sharing the gospel with you and teaching you the scriptures at a young age, do you think that happened by accident? You know, think back to, uh, what about your college roommate who was consistently inviting you to that Bible study? Do you think that happened by coincidence? You know, what about your persistent neighbor who just happened to invite you to church every week until you went? Those were not coincidences. That was God working in ways that only he can work to bring about the circumstances that lead to our salvation. And so that leads us to our second reality. Our second reality here is God gives us a feeling of despair. God gives us this feeling of despair. Look to verse 27. Uh, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And so this great earthquake hits, the jailer wakes, he finds the doors open and immediately thinks, you know, the prisoners are gone. I'll tell you, as you know now, that from personal experience, this is like a prisoner's dream come true. You know, the doors are open, you're, you're free to go, right? Imagine being one of the prisoners. You're there, you're locked in your cell, listening to Paul and Silas praying and singing, and suddenly, you're free. The chains are gone, the doors are open, and you have nothing to lose. In fact, you probably, these prisoners probably had their life to gain by escaping. So the jailer, on the other hand, finds himself in a life or death situation. So listen to what one commentator says about exactly why the jailer's first instinct was to fall on his sword. He said this, losing prisoners was the most disgraceful thing that could happen to a Roman jailer. If he wanted to regain his honor, he could do so by falling on his sword. Such uh, such suicide was not considered an act of cowardice, but a heroic act of personal sacrifice. And so the government leaders had trusted the jailer with the expectation that he would guard these prisoners with his life. He knew that should any of the prisoners escape, he would be held personally responsible. No excuse, not even something beyond his control like a great earthquake would would change his outcome. This is what he had signed up for. He would forfeit his life regardless of the circumstances should the prisoners escape. And so the jailer wakes, he finds the doors open, immediately he's struck with this, this sense of despair. And now the jailer has this split second to react and reflect on what's happening. Wake up, prison doors are open, surely the prisoners are gone, and in his despair, he draws his sword to kill himself. You know, perhaps you had a similar experience. Maybe you had this life-changing earthquake that very quickly brought about feelings of despair. You know, the jailer had just a split second to react. Uh, But if I had to guess, most of us, the sense of despair common to most of us was a long and drawn out process. So I know when I was sitting in my jail cell, I had plenty of time for like self-reflection, you know, plenty of time to think. There's plenty of time to think about like, how did my life end up like this? You know, when you're in jail, you feel like you're just the worst of the worst, looked down upon by society, 
And that was my experience, but of course, that's not everyone's experience. Maybe you weren't looked down on by society. Perhaps you were, you held a high position in society, or maybe you were popular in your high school, or perhaps you excelled quickly in your career. We all come from different places with different backgrounds, and yet, in our sense of despair, we're all driven to the same end. We all know we need to be saved, even if at some point we can't articulate what we need to be saved from. And so the fact that we're all sinners in need of a Savior drives us all to a sense of despair, but, but not without a solution. And we'll see that solution in our, our third reality. Third reality is God calls at conversion. God calls at conversion. Look to verses 28 through 33 of the text. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now remember, Paul and Silas are, are in the inner prison. They're, they're in the prison inside the prison. And so the jailer had to walk through all the other cell areas to get to where Paul and Silas were. And he has to be thinking to himself, counting the prisoners. There's a prisoner. There's a prisoner. What is going on here? How is this possible? The doors are gone. The chains are gone. The stocks are gone. And yet the prisoners are all here. You know, there's no doubt that from, we can just take this from the text that Paul and Silas, they had a major impact on their fellow prisoners here. They had nothing to lose by escaping, and yet here they are in their cells watching the jailer rush into Paul and Silas's cell. It's not exactly clear what the jailer was thinking at this point, but one thing, one thing is for sure. All humans, you know, whether they are professed faith in Christ or not, or whether they believe in Jesus, or they claim to be agnostic or atheist, whether they're a jailer in the first century or sitting here or watching the live stream today, Everyone knows deep in their heart that God exists. And whether we acknowledge God or not, we will stand before him one day and give an account for our lives. And so we have a front row seat, I think, to when the jailer has this realization. The jailer is having this realization as we are looking at the text. And he enters into Paul and Silas' cell with the question, I think, that every evangelist longs to hear. Look at verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So the jailer knows that Paul and Silas have the answer to this question. You know, perhaps he fell asleep to listening to Paul and Silas. They were singing and praying. Uh, perhaps uh, Paul and Silas were sharing the gospel with the other prisoners when he, when he overheard them. Or, I mean, maybe Paul and Silas shared the gospel with him before he went to sleep. We don't know. But surely the jailer knew about the slave girl that they had casted the demon out of, right? He knew that the slave girl was repeating. Look uh, with me over to verse 17. She was repeating, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And so certainly as the jailer enters into the cell, he he was desperate for salvation on a physical level. Remember, just prior to this, he's about to kill himself. But he was also desperate for salvation on a spiritual level. And so Paul and Silas answer him, look back to verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now to some of you, this may sound unbelievable. I know to me, if I'm being honest, I'm in my jail cell, I'm reading this, and everything I thought I knew about Christianity was shattered. Paul and Silas didn't say, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus and attend church every Sunday and Wednesday and 
you know, give a million dollars to your church and work as hard as you can and be as good of a person as you can, and then and only then you'll be saved. No, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. No additives, just believe in the Lord Jesus. So Paul and Silas tell the jailer that salvation comes through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ alone. Not through our works, not through being a good person, and certainly not through attending church every week for 40 years. Salvation is a gift from God. And if we look to verse 32, Paul and Silas tell the jailer and his family all about it. This is in verse 32. And, he, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household. And so Luke doesn't provide much detail here, presumably because throughout the book of Acts, we have speech after speech after speech of them sharing the gospel. Uh, but Paul and Silas, I think, are doing what every believer is called to do, and that's share Christ with those who have yet to believe. So they're sharing Christ. And so I think if, if you're here this morning or you're watching the live stream and you're thinking to yourself, I don't, I don't know if I've experienced this conversion. If you have yet to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, I think pay close attention to what Luke is communicating here. You know, Paul and Silas are telling the jailer that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wage of that sin is death. You know, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to die for you and for me. You know, Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary and came to earth to carry out the will of the Father, he became God's perfect sacrifice for you and for me. He was fully man, fully God, and he was perfect in every way, and he went to the cross on your behalf. And hanging there on the cross, God placed your sins on him, and after he was dead and buried, he rose again on the third day, defeating death. He showed himself to uh, the disciples and many others before he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's currently reigning over all creation. You know, this, this is the reason that Paul and Silas can tell the jailer in his household, believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You know, this is the reason that, that we find hope in our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. It's because we find new life in Christ at our conversion. You know, conversion is the first step in, in, in a long walk with Christ, our conversion helps shape our personal relationship with, with Christ because conversion is closely tied to repentance. Upon conversion, one must turn from their sins towards Christ. Let go of one master to serve another. And so Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 1, he says, God transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. And after transferring kingdoms, there's a new expectation for our lives. One that Peter reminds us of in 1 Peter, he says, you know, he quotes Leviticus when he says, you shall be holy for I'm holy. You know, this is the new expectation after conversion, holiness. We're called to a life of holiness no matter what our lives looked like prior to our conversion. Whether you're a career criminal and a drug addict, a 65-year-old grandmother or a freshman in high school, you're set apart for the Lord at your conversion. And going forward, you should seek to honor and glorify him with your life. Of course, we could never do this perfectly while we're here on earth, but when we sin, we fight against it. We keep turning from our sins and towards Christ. This is the life that, is, that we are called to as Christians, and conversion is the beginning of that life. And this leads us to our fourth reality that we see in the text. Our fourth reality this morning is God changes lives at conversion. God changes lives at conversion. Look to verses 33 and 34. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to the, 
to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so it's clear from the text that the jailer is a changed man, right? Think about this jailer just hours prior to his baptism. He's experiencing like the worst day of his life. (laughs) Not only was he spiritually dead, but he was like seconds away from physical death. But today was his day. Today was the day he repented and believed the gospel. You know, the same man who was torturing and imprisoning Paul and Silas was now bathing them and feeding them. What a dramatic change of heart. This is is a a great example of what happens when God changes the heart of a sinner. You know, when I reflect back on my own conversion, it's truly a miracle that I'm here today. It's truly a miracle. After I I was in jail, I was booked, I I joined a Bible study, and I started being discipled by my dear friend, Pastor Herb. He shared the gospel with me there in jail, and I was converted uh, right there in the Lancaster County Jail in Lincoln, Nebraska. But there I was, a new creation, a new creation in Christ, but still waiting in jail to go back to prison for another time. I could see that my life was never going to be the same, but I was a career criminal and a drug addict. You know, my life from the ages of 35, or 15 to 35 looked exactly the same. 10 years in jail or prison and 10 years on drugs. So the judge in my case had already told me, look, expect to get five years uh, for the, the crimes that you had committed. And so I, in my brain, I'm thinking, how do I get out of this? You know, I'm there in jail. How do I get out of this? I contact a rescue mission in town about an hour and a half away. And my plan uh, was to get my lawyer to get me in front of the judge one last time because this rescue mission had told me, yeah, well, if you can get out of jail, we'll take you. We'll take you. And so I tell, I have this letter from the rescue mission. I tell my lawyer, look, just get me in front of the judge one more time. My lawyer says, look, it's clear where your case is headed. We're not going to do that. So against his better judgment, he gets me a court date in front of the, in front of the judge just three days before I was supposed to be sentenced and go to prison. So I stay up all night. I'm praying, God, please soften this judge's heart. Please, please soften this judge's heart. And when I arrived at the courtroom the next day, my, my prayer was not answered. It was not. The Lord had not softened that judge's heart, but he had given him an illness, and another judge was sitting in his place. (laughs) And the Lord had softened her heart to let me out to go to the rescue mission. And so only the hand of God could have orchestrated something like this. This was God showing me that he was there for me. And so after nine months of being at this rescue mission, I had to go back in front of this original judge and he made it very clear that he thought that the the other judge had made a big mistake by letting me out to go to this rescue mission. But since I was doing so well at the rescue mission, he was not going to send me back to prison. And so like the jailer, after my conversion, you know, my life was never the same. No longer dead to sin, but alive in Christ. You know, alive in Christ and living a transformed life. You know, our lives are truly transformed at conversion. But even prior to conversion, God is working in our lives and giving us this unique testimony that we have. You know, one of the effects of our conversion and living this life for Christ is that it shapes, I think it shapes how we evangelize. God works in our lives to bring about a conversion experience that that really no other person will share. But while we all have our own individual experiences, we certainly relate to one another because we are all converted. You know, our conversion and our lives leading up to it help shape how, when, and where we share the gospel with people. Think about Paul in the latter half of the book of Acts that we're looking at today. Paul uses his personal testimony in an evangelistic way when he's speaking to the Jews outside the temple. 
And in Acts 24.10, he uses his personal testimony in front of Felix. And then when he's in front of King Agrippa in Acts 26, 4 through 23, in an effort to share the gospel with him, uh, he tells his personal conversion experience. So God gave Paul a personal testimony that he used to persuade others that Christ is Lord. And just like the jailer, just like you, just like me, I think we should look to our conversions and our testimonies that God has given us to show the power of God's saving grace to those who have not been saved. Of course, we share Christ, his life, his death, and the resurrection, but we do it with the tools that God has so graciously given us. We share the gospel because it's what we're commanded to do as Christians. Every person who has experienced a genuine conversion should look to the experience that God has given them and share that with others. And so, friends, I hope that you can look at the story of the Philippian jailer or look at your own conversion experience and know that God has the power to save anyone around you, no matter their circumstances. God has the power to save sinners in the first century just the same as he has the power to save now in the 21st century. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for for your word. I thank you for sending your son so that we could be saved, Lord. I pray for my friends and fellow students and the faculty here at Midwestern. I pray that we would seek to honor you and glorify you with our lives, Lord. I pray that you would continue to bless Spurgeon College and, and Midwestern Seminary. Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.